Good morning again. We're so glad to have you here. If you want to make your way in your Bibles this morning uh, to John chapter 19, I'll give you some further instructions there uh, in just a moment. Uh, This weekend is for our country. If you're here in this room this morning or if you're listening online or anything like that, this is our Veterans Day weekend. And so we celebrate as well as we can uh, those and we want to honor those who have gone before us. So if you have served in our nation's military or are currently serving, would you stand just so that we can recognize you here in this room this morning? Would you stand, please, this morning? Thank you so much, folks. You may be seated. Even today, our veterans are coming home with scars and wounds. Not many of them are on their skin and are visible. Some of them are invisible, things that you would never imagine. I've talked with some of you, particularly those who are vets, to be able to talk about some of the real issues that our troops face. I've got guys in my family who have uh, extended family who are still dealing with the effects of coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and PTSD and uh, just the, the emotional wounds that they have from being in the United States military and the difficulty that it is. So I, I served for four years in the Marine Corps, and I didn't see any combat or anything like that, and it was still difficult for me to transition into a civilian life. Uh, for those who have been in theater uh, where, where bullets are flying over their heads and really in dangerous situations, the transition back to normal everyday life is not as easy as we would hope for it to be. So your friend that has been gone for years uh, is now back home and trying to integrate into normal society in our community. And, and a lot of times we as a church, we as a people, we as fellow co-workers don't understand why they're not the person who left. We don't understand why uh, they are struggling with some of seemingly normal activities. They don't want to go to the mall or go to a football game because there's large crowds of people. You have to understand what they have been up against and what they have seen is entirely different than what someone at their age or at their position in life should have seen. And so those things are difficult and those things are around us and those things are real. We also need to take time to honor the, the family members, you know, the wives, the sisters, the cousins, the, the mothers, the ones who stayed home and, and they had to keep everything uh, together while their loved one was away. Uh, those people as well uh, have, have suffering from PTSD and other really difficult emotional scars. Uh, there are some physical scars, yes, but it's the emotional scars uh, that continue to build up year after year. And many of us have an understanding that, yes, there are Vietnam veterans and other vets that live uh, homeless today. Uh, What we don't realize is there are Afghanistan and Iraqi vets that are just as homeless and just as lost, seemingly, around us. And so we need to do the best that we can uh, to be able to wrap our arms around these troops and find ways uh, to be a better community uh, in regards to who the church is and how we do our job here. Uh, Fortunately, I think it is uh, very exciting, over the last number of months, the last year, we have had a number of military families come into our church and into this community here at 6301 Main Street, Williamsville, New York. It's not something that's typical because we don't have a large base around us or we don't have a large number of troops coming and going, but as time has passed, we have seen that our church has a role to play in this conversation. So we don't want to leave that out 
uh, this morning as we think of our veterans. So will you once again give them a round of applause for their families, for the vets uh, this morning. So I did serve in the Marine Corps. Uh, I've shared with you many times before that I served in the Marine Band, and so part of my job and role was a lot of the ceremonies, and specific to the Marine Corps, this time of year as well, is the Marine Corps' birthday. So in 1775, November 10th, 1775, my Marine Corps came alive. That's how the, the little ditty goes for you to be able to remember that each year. And so this year, uh, the Marines are 242 years old. And I still get text messages from guys that I served with, happy birthday or happy birthday devil dog or something like that along those lines on our Marine Corps birthday. Because I was in the band, we did a lot of the ceremonies, and so part of uh, the Marines' birthday is that every year, no matter where you are, whether you're in combat situations or whether you're here in the States, there's a birthday cake that is shared among all Marines on the Marine Corps birthday. If you're doing a formal ceremony, the birthday ceremony is a, is a pretty formal thing. It's, it's a, the Marine Corps ball, and so uh, you get together and you get your dress blue uniforms on as well as you can. And, and one of the ceremonies is this parading of the cake through the center of the room with people uh, marching the cake across the room because the military loves to take a general thing as happy as a birthday cake and turn it into something very formal and rigid and how we're going to uh, eat this birthday cake. And we take the cake and we, we talk about, we read from a scroll of why the cake is important and what it means. And then uh, as, as the band, our, our job was to play the music while the cake is processed down the aisle. And then um, we take the military sword and we, we cut the first uh, cut of the cake with the sword. And here's the top secret thing, the whole cake is actually wooden except for one little corner of the cake. Um, that we cut every year the same corner of the cake. And so there's all of these kind of things that go through, but one of them that I just, I'm reminded by that's important is when that cake is cut, there are three pieces of cake that are publicly uh, handed out as part of that ceremony. Uh, The the guest of honor, usually the speaker for the night, uh, is given a piece of cake. And then the oldest Marine present in the room uh, or former Marine present in the room is given a piece of cake. And then that Marine takes a third piece of cake and gives it to the youngest uh, person in the room. And so it's designed to be this uh, idea of this brotherhood, this family that is being, again, transitioned again year after year in this memory of, of the birthday, the Marine Corps birthday. And so I get to be a small part, a tiny little part of a bigger story that has been told for year after year after year. And in many ways, that's what we've been doing with the sermon series that we are in, this long story short. We are covering as much of Scripture as we possibly can in a short amount of time. But I hope that you are finding yourself as a small character in a much bigger story. There's a fast-moving river, and we are kind of jumping into it midstream, realizing that this story has been in motion for a very long time. And so when I drive down the highway, if I'm on the 90 or somewhere, and I see a vehicle that has the letters USMC or the word Semper Fi or the Eagle Globe and Anchor, I see that and I'm reminded that I am part of a bigger family, a bigger story. And hopefully for you, uh, you are also connected to the bigger story that we see being played out in Scripture. And so however that for you is triggered, it might be as you are driving down the road of seeing a Jesus fish on the back of a car or seeing crosses uh, somewhere that you kind of reminded that I am part of the bigger story. 
So the bigger story we're going to talk about today of really the biggest event in the biggest story, largest story ever told. We are going to talk about the biggest event in history. We are talking specifically about his story, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what we want you to be reminded of, and I think uh, as, as I have traveled back and forth, I was stationed in uh, South Carolina, and I've got family there in South Carolina. Much of my traveling over the holidays and different times is up and down uh, the East Coast between New York and South Carolina and making my way through the West Virginia mountains and different parts there. How many of you ever traveled through on I-64 through the West Virginia mountains? 67 is in there too, 75, yeah. So you make your way through the mountains there. In that particular area, you'll notice many times a repeating theme of crosses set up on the hill. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. You've seen them before? Okay. So I want to tie that into this morning, uh, what is going on. Um, if you've ever seen them, they were put them by a man named Bernard Koffendoffer, who was born in Craigsville, West Virginia. At 42 years of age, Mr. Koffendoffer became a Christian and decided to then use his resources to plant crosses. During his lifetime, he raised and spent $3 million planting 1,864 trios of crosses in 29 different states in Zambia and in the Philippines. You'll notice them most specifically in West Virginia, his home state, because there was 352 of them specifically in that state uh, that were put there. The connection that I've made to our story today is that he actually served in the United States Marine Corps. So he served in the Marine Corps, and he served, and his time of duty was what we call the Pacific Theater, fighting at the bloody battle, maybe you've heard of it, of Iwo Jima. And so he was there at Iwo Jima fighting in that battle. And then he was there again in Nagasaki, Japan, as part of the peacekeeping force as uh, hostiles were being uh, reduced in that, and putting an end to the war there. So following his military service, he came home. He returned to what we know as the mountain state of West Virginia. He worked there for years that followed, and eventually he earned a degree from Charleston, the University of Charleston there. He created a side business uh, that's job, again, West Virginia is a coal state, and his business was designed to wash coal. And in West Virginia terms, he made a small fortune doing that. But at age 42, with four kids, he realized and stood at one point that he had heard the story many times before of the cross and of the three crosses on a hill. But for that time, at that moment, at 42 years of age, everything changed. That story went from being something that was nice for other people to hear, and this World War II veteran knelt and softly asked Jesus to become his personal Lord and Savior. And in that moment, he had taken the cross, the story he had heard thousands of times throughout his life, and something became personal, something became real, and something about that cross made this wealthy individual to stop putting his efforts and his money into himself, and suddenly he had a bigger mission and a bigger picture, and that true passion came through the cross of Calvary. And so this morning, you may have heard this story numerous times before. Maybe you're 42 this morning and you need to hear this story for the first time again to be able to understand that this story, the story of the wonderful cross, is the one that you need to hear today for you, for yourself, and that your life could be forever changed because of how you hear the story this morning. Will you lean in with me this morning as we dive into John chapter 19 and chapter 20 and see what God has to say, see what God's word has to say about the wonderful 
cross. If you're following us and taking notes in your bulletin, there's a white sheet of paper in your bulletin. That is the first fill-in for you today, the wonderful cross. We're going to begin in John chapter 19, as I said. If you're using the black Bible in front of you, uh, it's on page 1135. It's in the New International Version, so if you're using uh, an iPad or an iPhone, you can get there uh, through those means as well. So we are in John chapter 19, just beginning in verse 1. Will you read with me? Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they slapped him in the face. Now we are, as I said, we're kind of diving in midstream into the story. But as we dive in, I want you to see, maybe, maybe you're wondering why or trying to remember why. How did Jesus get himself into this position in the first place? The religious leaders of the day were jealous of Jesus because he, he threatened their authority. They had ruled the roost for a long time, and now Jesus was coming in. He was beginning to have influence. He was beginning to have people follow him and listen to what he was saying. And they all were marveling, it says in Scripture, that this uneducated man and the uneducated men, the disciples who followed him, at the way that they could speak with authority from God. And so because of that authority, the religious leaders were jealous of him. The secular leaders thought of him as a nuisance because he didn't tremble before the almighty power of Rome. He was not terrified by the power of Rome. Literally, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and they come and they take him, it will be the road that takes him to the cross. They lay hands on him and they, and they says, who is it that you speak? And when they spoke his name, Jesus of Nazareth, they were blown away, knocked to the ground just by speaking his name. He was not intimidated by the Roman rulers. He was not intimidated by the Roman soldiers. And so this secular nation was nervous and afraid of who Jesus could be. Why? Because he was a nuisance. And the Jewish people... The people who he had come to rescue, the people who he had come to save, they were confused by him at best, but at the end of the day, they were disappointed in him because they expected the Messiah, the one they had read about and waited for all these years, they expected the Messiah to come and overthrow any government. They saw him as the King David of the New Testament, that this King David would come with a sword in his fist and be able to free them from oppression not understanding that Jesus had not come to be victorious or be their king in that manner. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us. As we've gone through this long story, you'll see that even from the beginning, as we've made our way through there, from the beginning of Scripture, God told his people that he would send a Savior to take their place under the curse of death. He told Adam and Eve in the garden, if you remember, that he would send a deliverer who would crush the serpent of death, that he would put that serpent, that he would bite the heel of the deliverer, but then that heel would now crush the serpent's head. From that point on in the Bible, we see again picture after picture after picture. When we see Noah and the great flood, what do we find immediately following that? We find this rainbow. Ramo demonstrating that God would never again destroy the earth in the way that he had with the great flood and that one day someone would come and rescue them. And every time that they saw that rainbow that they would be reminded of that truth. 
when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, what happens? God intervenes through an angel to be able to say, no, stop, look in the thicket, look over there in the bushes, what do you see there? You see a lamb caught in the thicket because that lamb was going to be the the substitutionary uh, offering instead of Isaac. He was going to be put on the altar. And then the prophet in Isaiah chapter 53 said, He was oppressed and afflicted, talking forward, speaking forward about Jesus. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is all talking about the Messiah. Scripture had again and again breathed his name, and now he was here, and yet they're confused. I read an illustration this week that speaks pretty well to what Jesus was doing as this sacrificial lamb. It tells a story about a pioneering family in the frontier in the wild, wild west, and there's this wildfire that is sweeping across the plains. And the the father takes the family and takes them out to a safe spot and actually burns a large circle in the middle of his field. And there they huddle in the safety of that burnt patch while the storm rages through, the fire rages through. The family is kept safe because they were there in the, the burnt area of that circle and the path of the storm comes all the way through. Jesus, in a very similar way, took the fire unto himself. He burned that fire on himself, therefore, so that we can stand safe on the scorched ground. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. And so when we talk about the wonderful cross, when we think about, if you will, in the West Virginia mountains as you're driving through, you see those three crosses on the hill. We're going to talk about this morning three types of crosses as well. The first cross is this, the cross of redemption. This is a fill-in for you this morning. The cross of redemption. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 10. Do you refuse to speak to me? Remember, as a lamb going before the slaughter. Pilate says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus does speak here. He answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You would have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above, he is saying. I have the power, the one who gives me the power is greater than anything you have to offer. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin, talking about Judas the Iscariot. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Do you see this spot that that Pilate is in? But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Because the background of the time is, is Pilate's only job is to keep the peace. Pilate's only job, he's going to allow them to worship the way that they want to, but if they start infringing upon the the rule and the, the Roman rule of the day, this becomes a problem. And so when we started the chapter, remember that the, the, the crown of thorns was being beaten into his head. He was being mocked as a king. And now here, he is being called a king. And if, if you are no friend of Caesar, it says, verse 13, when Pilate hears this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat of a place known as the pavement, which is Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Look what he says. Here is your king, Pilate says to the Jews. 
But they shouted all the louder, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate's response is, shall I crucify your king? They responded, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. These religious rulers are stirring the crowd. They are using the right language by which to incriminate Jesus. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which is Aramaic, is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others. We're going to keep track of that. One on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, it was written in Latin, and it was written in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Don't write king of the Jews, but write this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate had an understanding to some extent as to what was going on here. You see, that, that isn't very much different from what we see today. Is when we say, Jesus, he is the Lord and the Savior. He is God, creator of the universe, and he came to earth and sacrificed himself for you and for me. Some of you in this room or people that you know would say, he is a good teacher who claimed to be the Son of God. I want to clarify the difference between claiming to be and actually being. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus took the fire onto himself and within himself so that we could stand in that fire ring of safety for what would happen. He suffered on the cross in our place. He suffered so that we wouldn't have to. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter, the author, is demonstrating and talking about really what happened there on the cross. So as we look at this passage, if you'll turn over in your Bibles, because I think we need to dig in a little bit deeper to the idea of those three crosses being represented. So if you turn over to the book of Luke, please. Luke is one of the synoptic gospels. He's trying to give the narrative of what's happening here. John is trying to tell what is going on behind the scenes, and Luke is giving the front view of what everyone saw in that moment. He's describing it well. If you're using those black Bibles, it's page 1105 in your pew Bibles. So if you're driving down the interstate and you see those three crosses on the hill, I want you to think about what those three crosses represent, all 352 of them. If you were driving down through West Virginia, you also see at one point on Highway 64 a, a sign that says you are crossing the Continental Divide, the Eastern Continental Divide, meaning that as you cross this, there are two buddy raindrops falling from the sky, chit-chatting their way all the way down from the sky. As they fall, if one of them falls a little bit to the right and the other one a little bit to the left, one of them is going an entirely different direction than the other one when they hit the ground. They can end up in opposite oceans on the opposite sides of the globe. Those two little raindrops seeming to come from the very same place. 
And what you're going to see here in this passage, in this representation of those two crosses, you will see two individuals who are virtually coming from the same background, the same story is being played out, and yet they will end up in two different places in eternity. This is the dividing line of history. And its pinnacle stands at the skull. Its pinnacle stands at that hill called Golgotha. You know, as this dividing line in history is painted, you know, there are times when the President of the United States is standing in front of the cameras. And he is standing there, and if he is speaking about a military engagement, then he's probably going to have his top leading uh, generals to be standing near him. If he is responding to a hurricane, he is probably going to have some of the uh, people who are in charge of hurricane relief standing around him. If he is uh, trying to meet and greet with townspeople, he's going to make sure that in the, in the shot that there are people uh, who are from all walks of life, different ethnicities, that they're all standing in the background. There's a whole science behind uh, those images and those shots that are taken. Here, we are calling the pinnacle, the great divide of history, as Jesus is on that mountain, that hill called Golgotha. As he is standing there, are two uh, men on each, either side of him, and they are not generals, and they are not the religious leaders of the day. They are two thieves, and he walks onto this stage, onto this platform, with two seemingly random, unnamed criminals. Because this is actually what it was all about. There were two crosses. First, on this side, you have the cross of rejection. The cross of rejection. Verse 38 of chapter 23. The cross of rejection. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. So we're making the cross over there between the two passages. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This is the cross of rejection. In the center is the cross of redemption. And yet on the other side, we see the cross of repentance. The cross of repentance. Verse 40 says this. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When we see those three crosses represented, we need to think about what these two guys have in common. Both were equally bad. Both were equally at fault. Both were equally in sin. It doesn't say that one was worse than the other. And actually the other gospel, the gospel of Matthew, talks about both of them cursing Jesus at first. And actually the one who rejects Jesus, the one who is on the cross of rejection, he actually is saying, Jesus, get me off of this cross. If you are really the Messiah, then save yourself and us. He would have loved for Jesus to be who he said he was. He would have loved for Jesus to be the idea of this ruler with a fist and a sword in his hand. But this thief, he began to understand something. 
He began to understand the words that were written above his cross. Jesus, the king of the Jews, written in multiple languages of Aramaic, of Latin, and in Greek, written that he understood that this was and is the king of the Jews. Verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, and Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's two little raindrops falling from the sky, and yet they're going to go in two different directions, very far from one another. These two crosses of rejection and the other cross on the other side of repentance are so close to each other, and yet they go in entirely opposite directions. And Jesus says to the one, today you will be with me in paradise. But then, verse 44, it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The barrier between heaven and earth in the temple, the holy of holies, God's holy place was torn from the top to the bottom, torn in two. It was no longer going to be a barrier between God and man. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus, the king of the Jews breathed his last. Verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And even in the same breath, you have to imagine him saying, oh no, what have we done? If he is the king of the Jews, he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. He is the one who's supposed to come and rule with a, an iron fist. He's the one that's supposed to come and change all of creation. He's supposed to be the one who breaks down the veil between heaven and earth. He is the one. He is the Messiah. And we just crucified the Messiah. Verse 48. He was our only hope. Verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and walked away. 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things, not sure what to do. So that is the wonderful cross. The story doesn't end there. The story continues with the wonderful surprise. And I think that this video tells it better than I would be able to. The wonderful surprise. Jesus' friends were sad. They would never see their best friend. How could this happen? Wasn't Jesus the rescuer, the king God had promised? It wasn't supposed to end like this. Yes, but 
Whoever said anything about the end? Just before sunrise, on the third day, God sent an earthquake and an angel from heaven. When the guards saw the angel, they fell down with fright. The angel rolled the huge stone away, sat on top of it and waited. At the first glimmer of dawn, Mary Magdalene and other women headed to the tomb to wash Jesus' body. The early morning sun slanted through the ancient olive trees, drops of dew glittering on leaves and grasses, little tears everywhere. The friends walked quietly along the hilly path through the olive groves until they reached the tomb and immediately noticed something odd. It was wide open. They peered through the opening into the dark tomb. But wait, Jesus' body was gone. And something else. A shining man was there with clothes made from lightning. Don't be scared, the angel said. But they couldn't help it. They screamed anyway. The angel asked them, what are you doing here? This is a tomb, and tombs are for dead people. The women couldn't speak. Jesus isn't dead anymore, he said. He's alive again. And their hearts leapt. And then the angel laughed with such gladness that they felt for a moment as if they had woken from a nightmare. The other women rushed home, but Mary stayed behind. How could it be true? Jesus was definitely dead. How could he be alive? Just then, Mary heard someone else in the garden. Perhaps it's the gardener, she thought. He'll know where Jesus' body is. I don't know where Jesus is, Mary said urgently. I can't find him. But it was all right. Jesus knew where she was, and he had found. She could hear her heart thumping. She turned around. She could just make out a figure. She shaded her eyes to see and thought she was dreaming. But she wasn't dreaming. She was seeing Jesus. Mary fell to the ground. Sudden tears filled her eyes and great sobs shook her whole body. And all she wanted in that moment was to cling to Jesus and never let him go. You'll be able to hold on to me later, Mary, Jesus said gently, and always be close to me. But now go and tell the others that I'm alive. Mary ran and ran all the way to the city. She had never run so fast or so far in all her life. She felt she could have run forever. She didn't even feel like her feet touched the ground. The sun seemed to be dancing and gleaming and bounding across the sky, racing with her and shining brighter than she could ever remember in the clear, fresh air. And it seemed to her that morning as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made anew, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, tiny sounds in the grass, the 
burns her heart out. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he making even death come untrue? She couldn't wait to tell Jesus' friends. They won't believe it, she laughed. She was right, of course. Here's the elements of the wonderful surprise. First you'll see the broken bonds of death. The broken bonds of death. John chapter 20 again, we're over there again. John chapter 20 beginning in verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along beside him and went straight in. He also saw the strips of, lying, lying, strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. The bonds of death had been broken. Do you remember when Jesus healed Lazarus and Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come out. And he was wrapped up in the grave clothes and he had to be taken out. They said, break away from those grave clothes and and live. Jesus had broken away from those clothes himself. Jesus had broke the bonds of death on that resurrection morning. Coal miners, when they would go into caves, they would often, overnight, they would leave a bird cage there in the cave so that in the next morning when they would come back, if the bird was singing, if the bird was singing, that meant that the gases had not built up to an unsafe amount. If the bird was not singing, the bird had died. But that was going to protect all of the miners who would go in the cave for that day. So the singing bird would announce to the miners, it's okay, it's okay to come in, it's okay to come down into the mine. When Jesus broke the bonds of death that morning, it is okay now is what the story was being told. That's what Christ has done for us. Coming up from the depths of death, he announced to all that are gathered here today that the bonds have been broken. It's safe. It's okay. You can enter death into the darkness and unknown. It's safe because I have been there, I have checked it out, and I have overcome. I have broken its chains. I have broken its strongholds, and you can believe in me. Secondly, the wonderful surprise is the victory over death. Verse 14, the story of Mary. At this she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me what you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary, in that moment, is afraid. She is nervous. She is anxious. She doesn't know what to do with what she is experiencing in that moment. But Jesus' power over the grave empowers the believer to face the uncertainties of life with confidence. 
the anxiety fades away because perhaps the biggest uncertainty of all is death. And in that, that creates a lot of fear for you and for me. But knowing the outcome calms our fear. Can I let you in on a secret? God has already beaten death. We have one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ takes on the unknown and it takes it all out of death. The hope of believer in Jesus Christ is that death no longer has any strength on us. It is no longer a giant to fear. Thirdly, the new life that comes in the face of death. We continue on in the same chapter, down in verse 24. Now Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with him. Though the doors were locked and closed, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said specifically to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. You see, Thomas, Peter, John, all the other disciples who were once fearing for their lives and running and hiding in the darkness, here they are huddled in a locked room. They were transformed into new lives New lives because of the resurrection. New lives living out with boldness. Not what is comfortable, the path of least resistance. But no, because of their lives and because of their walk and because what had transformed inside of them, thousands believed. And later, millions. And because of the resurrection and over the last 2,000 years, entire governments, cultures have changed. My life and your life has been changed. You see, spiritually, because of the resurrection, our sins are forgiven. Our life is renewed and our hope is permanent. Our eternal security is secure. We were given a new start, a new life for today, for tomorrow, for the next day and the next day, and the next. So if you're just trying to grasp all of this, if you've heard this before, but you need to come to grips with it one more time, let's make the long story short this morning. In the same chapter, verse 31, John chapter 20, verse 31, the author says this, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. This morning, this sermon series, the songs that we sing, it has all been written, it has all been laid out there for you for one purpose and one reason, as John states so well here, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Not that Jesus is a good teacher who claimed to be the Son of God and had some good moral thoughts for us all to learn in, but that Jesus is the Messiah. And we are each 
on one of those two crosses. We are each at the great continental divide. One way or another, we have to make a decision. As close as those things seem, we have to make a decision. We have to be able to understand that you may believe by having life in his name. Today I want you to leave here this morning having life in his name. To leave here different than you arrived. To leave here different, not in fear and in trembling, not worried about what is around you or worried what the future may hold, but knowing that God is in control, knowing that he spun all of the universe into existence. And then as things got confusing and difficult, the realizing that he, because of our sin, had to intervene, and he did so by redeeming us at the cross and then proved it by resurrecting on the third day. That's the God that I serve. That's the reason why we gather here each week. And that's why you can have hope for tomorrow. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you have done. Lord, a familiar passage, Lord, but let it come alive again today. Let us see the balance of our lives. And there's no matter how much we try to live a good life or to live a moral life, we are still on the wrong side of a great divide. And so this morning, we come to the cross of redemption, asking you, Lord, asking you, Lord, to stand in our place as you have. Lord, at the, the base of our faith, we must acknowledge that on our absolute worst day, in the middle of sin and filth, Lord, that is when you reach down and grab a hold of our hand. That is the story of the wonderful cross. And the wonderful surprise is you had victory over sin and fear, anxiety, and death. So if there's one here this morning Lord, who needs to come to you. They may have heard this before. They have seen the cross before. But for some reason, Lord, your, your word has spoke to them in a true and articulate way today. Lord, let them come to the cross of redemption, call out to you, and find the joy of living in the hope of that wonderful surprise. We love you, Lord. We praise you, and we thank you. Speak to hearts this morning. Move in this place, Lord. And we will continue to live our lives in this long story. Our little snippet, our little part, our little mark in the bigger story. God, let us live it well. Live it with hope and expectancy for you to return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.